so we get to this question of legitimacy, right? So how is legitimacy gained by a political or economic system or just, you know, just the larger system? The United States has, like, this project moving forward. Of course, like, it, it, at the end of the day, it's down to, like, base material interest, like mm-hmm. we're talking about, right? But, like, let's be clear. Between, you know, the, the end of the, the Second World War this like glorious 30 years and up until the 70s, there was a, a really deep sense amongst most Americans, right, that the system was legitimate and that it worked. Yeah. It wasn't perfect, but it worked. Even Nixon saying in, in 68, it's not perfect, but it works. And now when Watergate happens, when yeah. all of Nixon's chickens come home to roost, mm-hmm. because he's doing the same sort of backhanded shit he's always been doing, shiving people and, you know, fucking mugging old ladies in the street to do whatever he can to gain power. When he's finally caught by it, that is a psychological shock for the American people, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, that a president of the United States would be engaged in such just based criminality oh yeah so that has a real effect on politics after and having it happen simultaneously with the because he could only push down that garbage so much before it overflows right around the same time that watergate is happening the 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 things the the economic forces he was trying to suppress with his with his gimmicks and with his his his, uh lever fiddling they finally happen, like the, the inflation begins. And then, of course, you have the exogenous impact the of the Yom oil, yeah. the Yom Kippur war and yeah. then the oil shocks, right. which something people had never thought about. Cheap energy was just taken as part of the new economy. Yeah, yeah. And no one saw that coming. And all of a sudden, we're living in a different world and they happen at the same time. So it's like not only are our leaders crooks, you know, in a, in a very simple, like literal, like breaking into fucking houses and shit sense, but also the the system that they were uh they were supposed to be shepherding and 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 and, and cultivating also is failing at the exact right. same time yep. so you have a complete collapse in legitimacy uh any kind of faith in any institutions in America which had been yeah for a long time pretty much unquestioned and that is really what helped cynically that's what helped recreate the identity of the democratic party so this yeah. is where we talk about 74 and the new politics. The new so, politics. So yeah, as just because they're new doesn't mean they're better. Right. You absolutely. Know, new, new Coke. Yeah. It, it was new, but uh, it didn't really fly. So the old. So seventy-two was sort of the death knell of the old labor democratic uh, connection. The the, the 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 organic connection between the labor movement and the Democratic Party. Uh, but and you had the new principle was one of inclusion. The idea that we we want to bring everyone in, and that's good, but it's not sufficient. For a, pro- a political project, right? But and then Watergate happened, and Watergate created a new paradigm for people who wanted to pres- to redefine the left, right? Because the left isn't going to mean mere material gain for a working class that everyone with any kind of like long term vision saw was not going to be what was on the agenda. Like like as the inflation began, uh, uh, people began people at the top realized we're not going to be doing this just by giving higher wages anymore because that is just going to you know fuel the inflationary spiral so so we know we can't promise the old things the old meat and potatoes stuff right. that, that the lunch that pail used, politics. the lunch pail politics that defined the democratic party for 30 years uh and so they needed a new thing and watergate gave it to them and so in 1974 there was a huge wave in the house and senate Democrats swept into power, 
and they were called the, the you know they, these were the, it was called the new politics it was a broad umbrella term referring to a politics that was defined as the left mm. but was not defined by material interests right because material interests were thought to be the root of all of this awfulness right like like the grubby you know like one of the things that nixon got indicted for for or or, or was charged with was like fixing the price of big macs like getting <laughs> ray Kroc. this is true uh, ray, I, Cro- I, ray Kroc bribed because they were they were fixing prices uh-huh. during yeah, the, sure. the nixon's yeah. term yeah, wages and a number and, price controls, and a yeah. number of industries actually funded gave money to the creep slush fund in order to influence where the price was going to be fixed and one of them was ray Kroc, who 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 gave a big donation to creep to get the big mac price at a certain point so like the, the, the politics was filthy and corrupt and material greedy material interests were the root of it yeah and i want to uh, put a finer point on that too because when you're, we're talking about new politics that cannot be divorced from the new left yeah so of course you know, we appreciate what folks did. Boomers, we appreciate. You know, thank you for your service in the 60s and 70s, yeah. fighting against the Vietnam War, fighting for civil rights. Yeah, uh, like anybody who like went to a Freedom Summer or something yeah, like that, like, I would, I know in my heart I wouldn't have been, I had the balls to do that. More like we love you. You're not listening to this, but like <laughs> hug your father or grandfather if, if, you're, if you're out there. Uh, and grandmother, too. Unless they were Peter Boyle from the movie Joe. <laughs> then, don't, don't. Then, then kick them in the ball bag. Yeah. Uh, but, um, like a, a lot of the, this hangover, I think, wh- when this legitimacy crisis comes, there's still this hangover, I think, from the 60s of this sense of like um, abundance is not enough, right? Like it's again back to those Lordstown, Lordtown it's strikes. It's taken for granted. It's taken for granted. That's the main and issue. It's is like that they, the, ta- they assume that this is going to last forever. It's like the Fordism thing we were yeah. talking about, how like uh, in Lordstown, they had built like the most efficient factory good wages and whatever, but the workers rejected it anyways because you had gone to a point of, like, material progress in society. You can't, like, put, production. You can't pay, pad somebody's pay, pay packet enough to make the work worth doing yes because less, they uh, had they were they were they were relatively secure right and, and also I, I think that the the development of, of capitalism and just the development of society in the late 60s and into the 70s had gotten to the point where people it's like that stupid Maslow fucking yeah, uh, the hierarchy. Uh, hierarchy right where it's like they had gotten to the point where people were starting to uh, ask for like more profound things yeah. than just they were like, moving the up. lunch pail politics. They're moving up the pyramid. Moving on up, yeah. moving on up. So they're moving up that that pyramid and so like that hangover that exists in this new politics this consent, this idea that like we need to make politics pure yeah. and we need to like tell the truth. We need to elevate we need to elevate the discourse. We, are, and, we need to make it about ver- personal virtue. Like if we're operating from a pr- place of virtue which is contrasted with the corruption of the Republican Party. The real corruption, yeah. Then we, uh, we will, by definition, do good. Because we are good. Right. Like that's, it, it's, a, it's a politics of personal virtue, which has defined what it means to be a leftist, what it means to be on the left in any broad sense in America ever since. Yeah, personal from, the cultivation of personal virtue. I could just imagine the listener at home right now, like making that connection between what they see on Twitter and Facebook yeah. all the time with yeah. you know like rad libs and yeah, shit yeah. like that. Like uh, we 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 kind of like know where this led to because yeah. we're still living. We're in living it. in it. We're What's living in. The, in the, we're living in. And it all started with the '74 with this crop yeah. of the, so, and and so these guys who came in in '74, they were not getting elected by you know working class uh, communities. They weren't. They weren't urban. Uh, machine hacks they were getting elected uh, in suburbs 
in relatively well-to-do uh, middle-class professional suburbs where the people had felt to themselves where a lot of these people felt like they weren't worried about uh, material concerns anymore. They were set. They wanted a politics that spoke to their spirits, right. that made them feel virtuous by engaging in it, that made them feel like they were moving towards a higher plane, basically. And these these new Democrats, the ones uh, uh, from uh, the Watergate babies, class of 74, were of that same milieu, professionals, not people who came in from uh, even the party or um, union, certainly, but large, you know, college professors and, and, and a lawyer, a lot of fucking lawyers. Oh, sure. Uh, and they were speaking to people in terms of virtue mm -hmm. in contrast to corruption and, and affect and honestly like it makes sense like we just seen the presidency debased by this crook this hoodlum and they were speaking about a different way and because the prosperity and abundance was taken for granted people didn't realize that what could have been you could have seen when you were in that crisis of in the 70s it just being like a, a rocky moment you yeah. know that, that, that we were gonna figure out yeah, 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 we were yeah. gonna get through uh, if we could just like yeah re refocus recenter ourselves right, re right. realize what mattered and, and let the politicians you know like the the true like um american loving politicians just put in the right honest policies economically exactly. then we could get through this no. and then we can go back to abundance but on top of abundance we're going to have this sort of uh tran transcendent sort of uh love in the greening of america the, that was the title the, of a very popular yeah. book of the era and i'm thinking too of like jesus freaks and i'm thinking too of the hangover of like the communes of mm -hmm. the 60s which are still like very much in effect at this and then all of time. the personal uh the self-help boom of that era oh, yes. like esalen and all this like like people paying to get yelled at in, in hotel lobbies Listen, to become like better people in the 70s like you you had not you you hadn't lived in the 1970s until you'd paid a guy the equivalent of a thousand dollars to like primally scream yeah. uh reenacting your birth yeah. by your mother like yes. coming out of the womb that was that was just some like serious transcendental therapy right there yeah. and or, this, or you went to guyana and or you went to drank guyana a lot of and, flavor aid. yeah you know it, it was it was a little sugary. A lot of people got diabetes <laughs> down there at, at uh, Jonestown. But, uh, you know, they gave it a shot. It was utopian socialism. It was fine. But, yeah, like the, this sort of like cultural sense, right, where the new left, and let's put, like, again, a, a finer point on what the new left is. Of course, right, like we respect the struggles that those people went through being anti-war or whatever, being pro-civil rights, women's rights, and, like, of course, they moved that forward into the 70s, 80s, and, of course, up until today. But absent a class politics, yeah. uh, what you end up with is um, not just a politics of per personal virtue that says, I vote for this politician or I canvass because I am a good person and they are a good person. Yes. And we have the right ideas mm -hmm. and we have the good ideas. Yeah. And our ideas are, you know... Um, yeah, just virtuous and um, like like that is obviously insufficient to create a politics. But you know, you you have to understand that the boomers at this point in time, and th these are the people that we're talking about, they're baby boomers. Um, this was like kind of the horizon of their imaginary of how you can make America continue to have America be great. Yeah, and so in '74, that's how you square the circle of being in a country that you want to 
be proud of and, and be a part of and be a part of a continuing project that just did Vietnam right, yeah, and Watergate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank like you it's, for it's a way to up, redeem yeah. it. Yeah. Yes, right. It's like the uh, they're like the redeemers uh, exactly. in Reconstruction, yeah, yeah. but just for like uh, yeah. I don't know, genociding a whole bunch of uh, Vietnamese. Yeah. So so what happens with these uh, new politicians when they get into power? Like so we know that's like, it's like an effective virtuous politics, but what does it actually mean in practice? Well, what it means in practice is, is that they view no longer do they view the labor movement and the unions as a crucial component of their machinery of power. They view them as another filthy interest group, it's another big labor, a big labor, another just another grasping hand that warps politics away from virtue and towards self-interest. And so they come into power with a very hostile, uh, jaundiced view of the labor movement of organized labor. Uh, and they uh, have an interest in seeing its power reduced. And so that means that at the very moment that capitalist, capitalism in the West comes into its most profound crisis and the top-level uh, policymakers are tasked with reorganizing the, the, the political economy in a way to accommodate falling rates of profit and increased competition and all that, uh, there is no there is a dwindling number of people in government who have a commitment to the working class as such right a commitment or even like ties to it exactly any right. kind of way of being held accountable by it right. which means that when it's time and and then the real moment comes when carter gets in can we go to carter now because i i think that it's fair to say that the new politics of 74 this wave that we see right it oh it laps of course uh, those two four years it, it laps over into Ford right yeah and then we have uh, with Gerald Ford a, a big election mm -hmm. where a uh, peanut farmer a, a humble peanut farmer a, uh, a Baptist a uh, a straight talking gentle Baptist from Georgia we can blame him for ethanol by the way ethanol subsidies oh fuck another you know why? another black market. you know why you can blame him for ethanol subsidies why because the Iowa caucus was basically a jumped up straw poll until this point okay. like it was never it was not new hampshire was the first primary and there was an iowa caucus and the reason they let them do it is because the caucus gives you shit and it was just sort of like a way to raise money for the democratic party of iowa and nobody ever really paid attention to it and then carter won it coming out of nowhere and that put him on the national scene and gave him the leverage to like and and the and the national exposure to roll on forward and and get the nomination, and so that made the Iowa caucus much more power, important as as a contest, which meant that basically nobody could go, get win it, <laughs> nobody could hope to win it without bowing to without big bowing ethanol, to the fucking ethanol lobby, <laughs> yeah, let's, fucking corn. Let's assholes. take corn, something that that takes is very like intensively grown, and it takes a lot of resources and could feed humans yeah. and animals, yeah. and let's use it instead to power vehicles. Great fucking let's, idea. Let's use more fucking energy than you get out of it to make yeah. it. That's a smart that's, move. That's great. And and actually, uh, as you said that, you reminded me of an important thing that we almost missed, which is that uh, right after the Watergate debacle and after uh, Nixon resigns, a guy by the name of Frank Church. Yes. Out of a state uh, well, called. ran in 76. Yeah, that's why I thought of it. That's Thank you for reminding me. Uh, he actually won three states in 76. Um, so the Church Commission is a huge, monumental event. You had Daniel Ellsberg, of course, who leaks the Pentagon Papers, which, again, destroys the legitimacy of the 
of politicians and the military. You were lied to by every single <laughs> person in a position of power for a decade. Yes. Uh, Gulf of Tompkin, false flag. Yeah. Like, again, we could take that. We can own that. Yeah. It was legitimately every single, a false flag. Every single time a, 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 a McNamara or a Johnson got on TV and said we're doing good, they knew we were getting our asses kicked. They knew they were getting reports saying this is totally hopeless. And they were still going on TV saying there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, all of the uh, the Black Panthers and the, um, you know, Marxist Leninists and Maoist radicals of the 60s and early 70s who were really paranoid because things were getting really fucked up around them. There was all sorts of provocations and people were acting all sketchy and weird. Turns, turns out, out they were all cops. Yeah, they were all fucking cops. You know, it turns out that the CPUSA at that point in time was like 60% FBI yeah. because of COINTELPRO, right? Yeah. Uh, you have um, Seymour Hurst who releases the family jewels of the CIA mm-hmm. talking about the overthrow of uh, Arbenz in Guatemala, uh, the Shah of Iran, Lumumba, you know, Lumumba and all these. So the, the church committee is, again, this uh, this truth committee, essentially. Yeah, it was, Just a truth, like in this, it was a truth, but no reconciliation. Right. In, the, in, the, in, the, in Argentina, there's truth and uh, reconciliation. But with the French, Frank, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the church, commission. the church commission, French commission, French commission, yeah. Frank. You Frank Church. That, that's that sounds like a uh, like a synth pop band or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. Uh, for, I'm thinking of uh, um, Frank Black from. Uh, oh yeah, Next yeah. Days. That yeah, that's his side project. But no, anyways, like uh, th- there was there was definitely truth and um, but no reconciliation because it was this moment in time where America was forced with Vietnam, with the Church Committee, um, with Watergate. To like to look at what it it had always been, mm-hmm. right? America at this point is the world hegemon still. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're starting to see it crumble a little bit, but we still are to this day, right? Yeah. So obviously, you know, like they were right to think that, and they wanted to think that America was good, you know. Because, of course, you know, America everyone wants was, to think that they're the good guy. Yeah, we're the good guys, you know. Um, we even uh, I don't know. Jeffrey Dahmer looked in the mirror and said, like, they just, you know. I, they deserve that. We beat the Nazis, the... and then we just coasted on that shit. <laughs> it's like we we can't be bad. We beat the Nazis. Yeah, it's like a L.A. screenwriter. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. One good hit, and yeah, it's like it out for the rest I remember of the I went to a, a Dodgers game a few years ago, and like half the crowd was like seventy-five-year-old guys in windbreakers with ponytails who you do are living off like Quincy residuals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking. Uh, thanks to the unions out there, actually. Those are the, those. Uh, those Hollywood. Users, oh, yeah. No, they're good. Know, they, the, yeah, they get the those good. residuals forever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like uh, th- this deepens again the idea that like you have been lied to. Mm-hmm. And so the question in uh, 76 and maybe why. I mean, I'm just making this up, but maybe why church doesn't win is because he does represent. A oh, yeah. Truth he's, that he's, would need reconciliation. He's Banco's ghost at the at the fucking dinner. <laughs> right. uh, whereas Carter is more trying to, it's like he's trying he says no we don't need to really i will embody virtue yes, for you right like you're not gonna have to do the yeah. work of we're not gonna have to do any kind of soul searching i we i will it's like obama i will be a new era he i will went, be a break with the old dirty past and yeah. the beginning of a new era he, whereas church He's coming there. He's got, you know, the blood on his hands. Right, right. And you can't not think about him holding up the gun with the scope on it and, like, yeah. all that shit. <laughs> and, like, fre- and fucking Richard Helms. And like, Felix talking about 360 flipping and yeah. no scoping so what trach shot or whatever. Yeah, yeah that's, that's Frank Church, folks. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, like... Uh, 
uh, Jimmy Carter was like, I'll be your mirror, reflect what you are. I will you know, never like, lie you know, to you, he said. I will never lie to you. And it's like, imagine a politician, imagine a politician saying that now. Yeah. You'd be laughed out of the world because yeah. it's just Read like, my lips, no new even, if you, even, if you, even if you didn't think he was lying, it's like, you don't talk. That's because corny. Cynicism, You're too fucking corny. The, the cynicism, cynicism we exactly. have is a product of this era. Exactly, because reason. we got this fucking guy yeah. and he said, I'm not going to lie to you. All yeah. right, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But he sure as shit didn't help anybody. No. He fucked the dog big time. He was a representative of this, like, effective uh, virt- virtue he, politics. It's he virtue a, signaling president. It, <laughs> hand-waving, clout-chasing, virtue signaling. He was a clout shark. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing, but like Carter, the way to think of him is you have this public persona as this, this paragon of virtue. I have lust in my heart, that whole thing. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Meanwhile, he was his project as president was to... Be the guy who vanquished the last vestiges of the old uh, New Deal Labor Democratic Party. Like uh, he had major- Democratic majority for all four years, and he basically passed nothing, because even with the Watergate babies in there, there were still enough old traditional rep- Democrats yeah, in, sure. in in uh, Congress that that they wouldn't go along with his plan. Because not only did he want to reorder his big thing, the big political economy thing that that has resonated the most the most important thing he did as president to, was to deal with the inflation that was spiking was to appoint shock paul volcker with the volcker yeah the volcker <laughs> shock he appointed paul volcker to the uh to the, the fed chairmanship and his brief was to end inflation anyway necessary now there's a bunch of ways you could do that hypothetically but if you're operating in a milieu where you have this new technocratic democratic party with no organic ties to the labor movement and this is also an era when the labor movement in this sort of death throes is making its last stand. You know, the yeah. spike in strikes in the 70s not seen since the end of World War II. Right. Uh, and so and leaving the residue, uh, this powerful one, but uh, dying of uh, public sector yes. uh, uh, workers who had not had the right. Right. And fate accompli through wildcat strikes and grassroots organizing won that right yes. to do it you know that's a lot of this wildcat but of course as we talked about the wildcats were against these sclerotic unions that were no longer doing yeah you know what the what the folks want so you have a labor movement that's totally dysfunctional at war with itself in a lot of ways i mean jock Leblonsky for christ's oh, sake God, getting murked our, by uh our boy by tony boyle uh yeah. uh you have this civil war in the labor movement also rising militancy which no party in power wants to see nobody wants to see a bunch of strikes oh, even no. if they're on your side in a broad fdr sense. only used them for two three years yeah. before he clamped down on yeah them. yeah and so they have you know the the people in charge have have a vested interest to to resettle the uh, uh, political economy around uh disciplining the labor movement and getting it on board with the new reality yeah, the yeah, famous yeah. quote that volker had is that the the standard of living of the american worker must go down uh, and that was what the Volcker shock was, a huge spike in interest in rates that did tamp down inflation, but also uh, were, was catastrophic for uh, workers, not only in the United States, but uh, uh, throughout the world, most specifically in Latin America. Mm. The, the Volcker shock had its profound ratifications in Latin America because many Latin American, they had huge debts that were pegged in the U.S. dollars. Some of them even had currencies pegged to the U.S. dollar. And all of a sudden, their their debt burden just spiked because of the, the vastly increased interest rates, and it led to a, a, a continent-wide crisis uh, that was largely settled by death squads. But as uh, we do, but as so so that w- and and while he's doing that in broad macroeconomic, he, he's raising interest rates, and then more 
lower board, like more technocratically, he's also the first committed privatizer and deregulator, deregulator. right? Deregulating the uh, airline industry and trucking. Uh, and trucking. So, if folks don't know, um, airline carriers, uh, there were very strict, you know, basically like government monopolies on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were how many carriers? Like three. Yeah, barely. So, there were yeah. very few carriers. And um, in, in terms of trucking. Uh, what had essentially made the Teamsters uh, such a powerful union was that, you know, through the powers built in the 1930s, interstate trucking was considered under the Commerce Clause to essentially be the purview of the federal government mm-hmm. in order to set prices, right, in order to, like, you know, basically set competition. And also the right to bargain was mm-hmm. set across state lines. So when trucking is deregulated, you go from a situation where well, I'll just throw out a percentage, 70, 80 percent of truckers are union in the United States to a situation where like the independent cr- contractor trucker, which becomes this pivotal figure, of course, like the 70s, 80s until today, uh, you know, more and more becomes uh, this kind of archetype of like the, the reactionary. Yeah. You know, the, this, uh, the, this this lone gun out there scoring crystal meth at fucking truck stops and, you know, killing hookers yeah, when, yeah. When, when he feels like it. But uh, but 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 by deregulating that uh, Carter is going directly against the interest of organized labor. Oh, yeah. In the interest of, of course, this freeing of the market. Yes. And so because that's where we're going to make it back. Right. Because because we the the rates of profit are falling, our monopoly on industry is falling. Uh, uh, companies are recouping their profits by moving the industry out of the country to places where the labor is cheaper, and that is uh, that's creating a new model where we can power the economy through a more uh, yeah, a more a more a deregulated market that can then find more profit, and it turns. But what that ends up meaning is you cannibalize it from labor from the share yes. of labor of profit right and you know as keynesian i guess you call call it keynesianism which like the obverse of that is modern or uh, monetarism which is milton Friedman's yeah, yeah. propagandistic uh, neoclassical thing right but um or you could call it the fortis compromise into neoliberalism whatever you want to call that like entire structure that exists during this you know glorious golden age of capitalism that is like in decline right now but nobody really knows what to replace it with and when you talk about what volker says you know in terms of what the shock was meant to do it it almost sounds like a, an updated 70s version of what Andrew Mellon said under Herbert Hoover yes. when the Great Depression said. He said straight up, and of course, he'll go down in history as like, uh, at, for good reason, as a sociopathic monster, because he's looking at things from this, you know, very kind of conservative economics perspective in the interest of capital, of course, because he was a big capitalist. And he said, when you have this depression, liquidate labor liquidate real estate, liquidate banks, liquidate farmers. You know, the ones that are uh, are excess will fall by the wayside and then we'll have growth again when people pick themselves up. And of course, you know, the citizens of the United States decided with the election of FDR, they didn't want to be yeah. liquidated. Yeah, that they did fun. not want the free market yeah. to throw them off their farms and throw them out of their jobs and out of their houses and, you know, their savings to be destroyed. But what Volcker's coming back, you know, in, in the late 1970s and saying is that, like, we need to start that again. Yeah. We need to start disciplining. Because we need to start making losses being felt. Because because be somebody ha- somebody is going to lose in this new world because the, the, just the money isn't there anymore. And 
because the, the worker didn't have a really a voice in these at this point. They had no influence. That meant that by definition, it was going to end up being settled on the terms of ownership, on the terms of capital. Right. So while he's doing this, that's what he's actually doing, uh, and he's like fighting against the la- like the last gasp of the of the of the New Deal. Really, was the Humphrey Hawkins uh, full employment, employment act, act, yeah, which yeah. Carter fought like fucking tooth and nail against, uh, and did not want, and eventually they had to f- pass it just because of the like the la- like, kind of the dead, you know, the last energies were still there to necessitate like something to take home to the constituents and say you voted right. for. It was but castrated they, though. It right? was totally gutted. Yeah. It was totally gutted. Uh, so they were successful in, in neutering it. Right. So that's that's the progress. It's 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 reordering the political economy around around uh, deregulation, high interest rates, and reducing the share of labor of profit. Meanwhile, what he's doing as this new this avatar of the new virtuous politics is trying to make up for that which you know that's not gonna be popular Mm -hmm. people are hurting that's that's not good uh well he's gonna fix it by being virtuous by talking about uh about about talking about a new america talking about um the way that we can you know transcend our petty differences and 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 our, our greed and all that and he and uh but He's also facing these crises that aren't going away. Like you know, the 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 these solutions work, but over time, you know, they're not in the four years that he had. They're still not. This the economy is still sluggish. F- inflation is still high, uh, and then you had other, of course, things like fucking Iran, Iran hostage things that did not help him at no, all. No, no, no. Uh, and the only decent thing to say about him, of course, is that, uh, I mean, a lot of it was just propaganda and bullshit, but, like, he did de-escalate somewhat uh, foreign conflicts around the world. He, like, like, like this is one thing we could still say, like, Carter is, is good at, was, like, better on foreign policy and, like, uh, I don't know, a... Uh, the 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 head of an empire, let's say. He held, he, he, human rights. He was he willing to up, cut off, is, yeah, uh, our al- like arms to allies who right. are doing hell, uh, war crimes which in a way is, that Reagan the, would not have ever done. Which is ex- the same thing as the obverse again of like Vietnam, right? Yeah. So he's going and saying like, we're still going to be the global hegemonic military we're gonna, power. Uh, we're going to be doing with it was like Jerry Brown. I am President Jerry Brown. My aura <laughs> smiles and yeah. never frowns. But of course, like. At the same time, they were uh, arming the Mujahideen before the invasion of Afghanistan uh, by the I mean, Soviets. But, People but forget no, about that. But nothing bad ever came. Yeah, that out. was fine. It was fine. It all worked. Yeah, out. like that great. was his his national. He had like a mini. He had a mini Kissinger, uh, Brzezinski, his Brzezinski, national security yeah. advisor, and whose daughter is now on. She's TV. yes, she's married to Joe Scarborough. Oh, she God. he uh, he was asked about that because yeah, he they precipitated the invasion of Afghanistan by arming the people who were resisting the communist regime. That, that was there uh, before that, and he said, "Hey, you know what, what's a few fucking crazy Muslims compared to liberating Eastern Europe from communism?" And, and look, uh, when when we talk about, we're talking about this on a relative scale, right? So you've got, um, I mean, it's it's a well, maybe it's not a well known fact. I'll just say it that like in the Cold War, the the most hawkish figures were Democrats. Oh yeah. So like you Dean had Atchison. direct, you know, interventions all, all over the fucking globe, and um, it. When we're talking about like what Carter did with that was good, 
is uh, he he just did proxy war <laughs> and armed like you know uh, Mujahideen instead of just directly going in and like murking a bunch the of o- like, the Obama uh, rice. Yeah, light, light, yeah, light, 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 touch. light finger, light yeah, touch. Yeah, yeah. But I think the emblematic we're talking about this uh, the emblematic thing for of Carter's administration and it it, it, it speaks to both the the essential his essential uh, powerlessness and 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 uh, ineffectualness as a figure. Uh, and also the reason that he's member- remembered so fondly by liberals to this day is the Malays speech. The Malays The famous speech. Malays speech, which, which he gave. Like, uh, I, I think when people look back at it today, people who even remember or recognize what it was, it was seen as a huge gaffe, but it wasn't at the well, time, Well, see, right? that's the thing. So, it, so, all right, well, just to say what it was. So, it was towards the end of his term. Things are still shitty. Uh, I believe the hostage crisis had started by then, uh, and the oil crisis was still very much in effect and there was uh, the realization that there was going to have to be some change specifically around energy but but like abundant cheap energy that had been taken for granted for the entire lifetime of everyone living in america was going to an end so he's putting solar panels on the roof exactly and 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 telling people to wear sweaters instead of turning up the heat in their houses and uh and he gave a speech called the malay speech although people say he never said the word malays which he didn't and he just his, his, he breaks down how there's a spiritual crisis in this country. There's a sense of of uh, sort of how we're there's a sense of uh, spiritual dislocation, and we don't know where we're going. You know, we don't know. There's a, there's just a sense that we're kind of exhausting things. Uh, and he says, what we need to do is we need to like really look at what we're doing. We need to look at these systems we've taken for granted, and. At, and what actually happened at the time is that it was well received. People thought it was really interesting. They 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 appreciated his directness. His poll numbers went up. But then after Reagan won, it, there was for a while a new narrative that that had been a huge gap. They, that's when they started calling it the Blaze Speech because the pundits had to figure out yeah. why it was. And it's like, well, uh, yeah, it's Carterism like was, yeah. Carter failed because Reagan showed up and said, "Look at this pussy saying he got to put on a sweater." <laughs> right. or fuck him. Take all the fucking sweater. Exactly, and so. So for a while, it was like, yeah, this dope doing his stupid speech. But now there's a new consensus on the liberal end anyway that this was actually brave tooth telling mm. and that it's actually like a, a tragedy that we didn't listen to Carter and we instead allowed ourselves to be led down the primrose path by the Pied Piper of, of, of reactionary nostalgia in Reagan. But the thing is... There was no policy connected right. to the fucking speech. He was yeah. not promoting any idea. And if he had, he had no mechanisms to put it into power. Right. He had no organic connection to any mobilized group of voters or workers or anything like that. He had no policy to directly no, confront this moment. He had nothing. He had personal virtue. Right. Put on a sweater, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, the personal is political. Exactly. Uh, like, be personally more frugal. Yeah, so... There's a big bad wolf through all this just lurking in the background, and uh, he's a B Hollywood star. He's, uh, I'd say, good looking for an old he man. He probably right. dyed his hair. He but, definitely uh, dyed his yeah. hair. He would have been a nice silver fox. Co starred uh, in uh, several films with a chimp. Yeah, uh, did some commercials for GE, was mm-hmm. a uh, huge proponent of uh, anti New Deal politics all through this era. Uh, you know, ran several times. He was the governor of California, ran several times as a Republican, almost beat Nixon and didn't. He's in the background, but. Before we get to this elusive figure in history that people may or may not have heard of, 
uh, finish us out with like the contradictions within this uh, Carter program for fixing America's problems. Malays. So the Malay speech exemplified Carter's pitch to the American people, which a lot of liberals have retroactively justified as this last gasp of moral clarity in the White House. But the problem is, is that because it was connected to his actual political project of breaking labor power and reducing the labor share of profit, he made a inherent connection between America reckoning with its past, with its crimes, with its moral bankruptcy, and the, the submerged premises that the punishment for that, the punishment for the crimes we've committed, is austerity. Is austerity. Oh. And is, is a lowering standard of living. Wow, but we what, have it coming. What a compelling For being uh, a bad person. Political. Now, you could make an argument that I might agree with in the abstract that we probably did fucking have it coming. I yeah, mean, we sure. killed five million people yeah. in Southeast Asia, for Christ's sake. Uh, yeah, I mean, but we had a lot more than that coming. That yeah. is a fucking non-starter <laughs> as a political project. No one is going to sign up for that, at least right. not in the numbers that are going to be a durable majority. Right. And especially when you had this figure waiting in the wings, Ronald Reagan. Especially who, when the, you know, the Iranians had uh, risen up and mm -hmm. uh, had captured a bunch of uh, your diplomats and an embassy. The price of reckoning, the price of reckoning is, is international humiliation and abroad and then reduced standard of living at home. No one wants to pay that price. Right. No one. No one's going to say, "Give it to me." Yeah. Other, um, other than probably professional class people who aren't actually suffering the brunt of the economic right. retrenchment. Right. Because they're a rising class. Exactly. At this time. The right. professional right. class is going up as the yeah. working class is going down. Right. A lot of their and they're those, represented in Congress now. Yes. A lot of the kids of these working yeah. class people went to college and now they're professionals. Yeah. These boomers who were fucking dropping out and exactly whatever, now they all have cushy gigs yeah. that are only getting more uh, remunerative while labor is actually falling. And so they are down with that. Probably a lot of them. Sure. Yes, yeah. we deserve it. We're Punish good us. people. Look what we did in and, the 60s. And, and, we, and we, we sh there should be a national penitence. But for people who have actual kitchen table concerns. For the, pe the people who are, are, are uh, contributing to rising inflation, which is the working class, yeah. which keeps demanding more oh, and more in their wage Grubby, packing. grubby, just I demanding. Know. Oh, I want to keep my lights Ooh, on. I, I want, want a more contract. Yeah. Yeah, it's I'm like, going ugh, on strike. This ugh. is disgusting. Stop, you know. Yeah, and so, but that's... No one's you're never going to get a durable coalition out of that, especially when Ronald Reagan is there to say, actually, we never did anything wrong. We're good people. And the unspoken corollary is then we can all we should all be rewarded with abundance. Of course, that was never going to happen. Uh, and it wasn't part of the plan. But the patina of abundance, the patina though. of abundance. Exactly. Because now we have a new situation where re very quickly in the 80s, when you had the huge recession that happened shortly after Reagan came into office, uh, that that was like that was a, the purge. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, that was the 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 it, it, what what F Carter had been working towards his entire presidency. That was the moment, the hinge point of retrenchment, and then we restarted on a new level where now, political like uh, uh, economic health is t measured in totally different ways by the by the success of like Sunbelt exurban communities right. instead of. Urban cores, which are just completely being yeah, right. the destroyed. Right, the urban crisis is happening. Yeah, this time so like well, the yeah. cities are falling, but suburbs yeah. are rising, and right. that's where the new political power is. That's and where the voters now are. Is yeah, and so well, well, like uh, just just to, like the the contrast between Carter and Reagan, right? Mm -hmm. So Carter's already beginning what we recognize as neoliberal politics yes. right this deregulation this undermining of organized labor uh this putting capital in the driver's seat and basically disciplining uh the working class and also 
making the, the 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 first inroads against the welfare state that had been created from let's say like 1933 all the way up to like I, on like honestly fucking uh Nixon was talking about a UBI, Yang Gang. Yes. He was fucking, he was an OG Yang Gang, right? He absolutely was. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, he wanted to do it to destroy the welfare bureaucracy, right, but, right. like, the but, fact that that was being mooted by a Republican <laughs> yeah. president is absurd. Yeah, it's, it's insane to think about, uh, but that was the consensus, right? Like, what we're talking about is the breakdown of that consensus. So why, if you're a rational voter, and we can look back on the on the the people that like went from Carter to Reagan and be like, what did you do? Like Reagan, the Contras, you know, all the fucking like just base deal. Like what, what did you do? Why did firing you do that? Air, like why? Firing why, the air traffic controllers. Yeah. Right. The, the Patco strike. Like why go with like a facsimile, like a, uh, a like a, an upside down happy face, uh, neoliberal politician we can go for the real deal yeah. when you can get a guy Reagan who tells you that you know America is in uh, America is not won't just be as good as its own people but that it's morning in America yeah. right it's a new start for yeah. America that we're going to like that greed is good actually and that like it's not that we're going to chip away at all of these uh, structures that existed uh, coming out of the new deal. But we're going to actually argue against them. We're going to say government is not the solution to the problem. Government is, is the problem. The problem yeah. And he had a we don't like it, but it was an optimistic vision of what America could be. Yeah. And it also what he did was uh, this, the, the sense of the Vietnam syndrome where on foreign policy, the United States had been humiliated over and over and over again. Uh, Ronald Reagan also said, fuck that. We've got all these nukes, you know, like, of course, it helps, you know, to juice the economy. We have a giant military industrial complex we can pump money into mm -hmm. with like Star Wars or whatever. Right. But like he's he's saying America's back on the world stage, too. We're not going to fuck around. We're going to start going into places around the world. We're going to directly confront the Soviets. Right. No pussyfooting around with these little like, uh, you know, uh, Faye Mujahideen yeah. in, in Afghanistan. Granada, you're fucked. Yeah, you're fucked. Granada. New jewel movement. You're fucking done. <laughs> We are gonna do like so again. Like, why take the facts similarly when you can have the real deal? And that has been we, what the, that has been the dynamic in politics since then. Because there is there is at the end of the day no genuine difference. I mean, I know you can argue that that's horrible to say because of the specific cruelties and awfulness of the Republican coalition and their agenda. We're behind the paywall. Say whatever you want. But in a broad sense, there is no distinction in the policy prescriptions of the two parties. Which means you're just getting two versions of something, one of which is unalloyed and one of which is sort of uh, uh, hedged and, 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 uh, and hesitant. And that's not going to win. Yeah. Uh, the only people it wins against, uh, wins amongst, are comfortable, relatively comfortable, educated uh, people who... Read David Brooks' columns. Who, and want to <laughs> imagine politics as an expression of their personal virtue. And, and that is the democratic brand and has been since. And, is, and is not, has not the truth... Uh, aspect uh, as we've seen since Reagan now that we have Trump in office hasn't the truth aspect just kind of like flipped yeah. because Trump is straight up like masks off you know like oh, yeah. Trump is America mm -hmm. he is truth he's not saying like I will never lie to you he's saying I will lie to you all the time because you're lying to yourself and, gonna, and you love and it. You love when I lie because you know that they know we're lying, but yeah. you, you, there's nothing they can do about it. And they just get mad. Yeah. You're going to own them. You're yeah. going to own the fuck out of them. So like 
what happens in the 70s and what's like inaugurated with Reagan, of course we're still living within that paradigm because with that crisis of capital in the 1970s, you create an entire new social order, an entire new um, like structure of institution and politics and the elimination. A literal geography, you know, like yes. the, 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 the suburbanization and then the, the uh, immigration, the Sunbelt community, like and I've the got a, fall I've, of cities. I've got another uh, Sean Wolentz book over there, and it's, a, it's like a popular history book, but it's called The Age of Reagan. And uh, it, it's uh, the subtitle is 1974 to uh, I think it's uh, 2000. Yeah. Because what is Bill Clinton but he's, the recognition? He's the, he's the yeah. He is the solidification of the Reagan Revolution. Because it, it's like uh, when Thatcher was asked like what her greatest uh, accomplishment yes, yes, was, yes. she said Tony Blair. Yeah, it made but, him change his mind. Exactly, because yeah. she had uh, the the new Labor, just like the new Democrats under Clinton, which is the apotheosis of like what uh, Carter is trying to get at. Yeah. was the you know, basically the uh, recuperation of that wing of politics in the, you know, capitalist world that was supposed to represent workers into this neoliberal framework. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to do it in a more technocratic, you know, kind yeah. of, you know, happy, inclusionary, diverse. Because, of of, yeah, because a party can never hold power forever. And in, in, in in, that's like turning or turnismo is, is, the, is the, the lubricant that keeps, you know, the, the sham of our electoral politics going in the West. But so you're going to lose power at some point. The question is, does do you lose power to a party that has any kind of ability or interest in challenging the new structures that you've created? And the election of Clinton was the message that, no, you've 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 tamed the forces of opposition and there is no meaningful, organized political or social opposition to your broad agenda it's a consensus yes it's a consensus just like uh there was a new deal consensus mm -hmm. that even the republicans would not yep. break so this is um again to get back to this uh term a pivotal decade because Indeed. it builds this social order so we've gone uh full circle we have uh completely um analyzed and recuperated the 1970s and i hope that people recognize the 1970s in the world that we live in today. Um, I want to get a little galaxy brain right now. Oh, I, yeah. uh, I, I gave uh, Matt this text uh, a couple weeks back. It's one of the more in inspiring uh, monographs I've ever read. It's by a uh, late um, world systems theorist named Giovanni Arrighi. It's called uh, The Long 20th Century. And I encourage anybody who is a theory, political economy, and history nerd to check this book out because it's an incredible synthesis of uh, Ferdinand Brudel's uh, Annals School, which deals with the long durée, the long duration of um, civilization and economies, but also combines it with Marxian political economy on a global scale. In uh, the long 20th century, what Giovanni Arrighi argues is that over the last 500 years, you've seen a series of systemic cycles of accumulation. And by that, he means particular power bases, particular nation states that represent a global hegemony, not just politically, but also economically across the world. And the way, the interesting way that he represents the rise and fall of various powers through this is through Marx's general formula, which, as all of our antifada. I mean, every <laughs> Antifada listener out there knows that the general formula is 
M, Decida, M Prime. I mean, we all know, right? So we all uh, love money, we, we all love the MCM. Yeah, money into commodities into more money. The mm -hmm. production process, right? So what Arigi argues and uh, makes a very very persuasive and in uh, fact based case for is that you have these various cycles of accumulation, and as one power rises, um, it enters into a period of um, kind of continuous development where it takes the various states around it and the various markets and capitalist enterprises, and it becomes the basically the center of that orbit that they all their satellites around. Um, these are periods of relative stability, right? But within each of them, of course, dialectically, they collapse under the contradictions mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, the, their own uh, being into chaos. And out of that, of course, a new order arises. Now, we're going all the way back to Genoa. So we're talking 1340. I'm not going to kill you guys with this <laughs> shit, right? So 1340 with Genoa. Then we go to the fucking Dutch, okay, in the 15th, 16th century. And then we go to, the, to Great Britain. And then we go the to satanic the, mills. the satanic mills of Manchester, right? And uh, in each one of these instances, you had a power within the world that, again, was able to become not dominant uh, in terms of, like, the Roman Empire was dominant in that it came in with a military and, like, took shit over right. and imposed itself upon it, but in a capitalistic way was able to basically siphon off the excess of accumulation and bring it towards itself while keeping those outside partners, you know, well enough uh, funded and... Uh, you know, well enough uh, suckered that they could uh, be part of this system until, again, it broke down. So in each instance of this, going from Genoa to the Netherlands to the UK, of course, to the United States, each one of these cycles of accumulation becomes more and more expansive. So Genoa is, you know, the Mediterranean, and then you have the Dutch, which is goes all the way out to Asia. You have the British, uh, which the sun, sun never, never sets, motherfucker. That's right, bitches. And then the United States, of course, which is the leader of the free world. Uh, and each one, of course, synthesizes the elements of the former, but the duration of these cycles becomes shorter every single time. And, of course, every single time there is an ideological underpinning for them. So, with that said, with, you know, the, the Genoa, the, the city-states of Italy, the, uh, the ideological conception was one of discovery. So, we're going to go to, you know, the East Indies. We are going to go and, you know, get spices. Uh, we are going to fund the Spanish expeditions to the New World to get silver. The Dutch, you know, they have this ideology of universalism, this very much Enlightenment ideal. The British, of course, have this conception of progress that they bring with their ideas of political economy, some of which come out of Edinburgh with that guy, uh, Adam Smith, yeah. and the famous uh, Scottish the Enlightenment. Scottish Enlightenment. Right? Uh, and the Scottish are uh, British, whether they like it or not, yeah, at least until, you lost. At least until Brexit, <laughs> until you can own the, own the English with 17 that. 17-7, motherfuckers, deal with it. You That's lost. It. And, uh, of course, the United States, the ideological underpinning of that is uh, this kind of dodgy conception of freedom such as it is right mm -hmm. so we'll we'll deal with the last systemic cycle of accumulation because that's the one most uh germane to what we're talking about today with the decline of the british empire uh which basically goes from like 
1815 with the Treaty of Vienna, uh, starting this period of free trade, um, all the way into the Great Depression, the first Great Depression of the 1880s and 1890s, uh, it, it starts to decline. And with World War I, you have this terminal crisis, essentially, of uh, British power that it could never recover from. Yeah, no. It, all, it died on the field of the sun. And they, they tried to keep it together. Like, Churchill, to his death, was a colonialist. But, like, you could not have this territorialized yeah. empire. You need to they super- never, I mean, come on. There's fucking, like, 15 pasty assholes in the middle of the North Sea. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't going to last forever. <laughs> with, like, with like, uh, like, like leading, like, 50,000 Punjab yeah. uh, soldiers into battle. Yeah. It, 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 it wasn't going to work out. So what supersedes that, of course, uh, especially after the Second World War, is the United States, which is able to not be a colonial power, not to be a territorial power with industrial capitalism like uh, the UK was, but to instead be um, a deterritorialized hegemon. Mm-hmm. And we see that, of course, in the Marshall Plan. We see that in NATO. We see that in the Bretton Woods Agreement, which, of course, fell apart under Nixon, but was uh, was a way, you know, an agreement amongst all of the capitalist powers about, you know, how you would trade and how the money would work within that. And the United States was central to that, you know, uh, global accumulation. And I kind of honestly think that that is where they won the Cold War is by creating a global market system that the Soviets were unable to not engage with and i think that was the attention of course and it, one of the intentions. yeah and it yeah. absolutely worked in the long term and it so, did and then but in the long term as we saw in the it also earlier yeah. it also it also pulled it apart mm-hmm. so if we buy Arigi's argument right that what you have in each one of these cycles um which are shorter and shorter is a signal crisis which usually happens like 30, 40, 50 years before the terminal crisis that basically shows that uh, this particular hegemon has gone from a period where it is M into C, which is to say an industrializing moment where the money being accumulated by various means, whether it's like selling slaves or just like looting land or expropriation, whatever the case may be, right, is turned into a commodity, which is to say like means of production. Mm-hmm. You have a process, a process of industrialization, increase of the production. You're accumulating. It's a, the accumulation of not fictitious capital, but right. real capital, right? Um, the creation of goods and services and everything that comes along with that, right? Um, Giovanni Righi, he died, but he wrote this and it, and it finished off in the early 90s. And he identified this 1970s period we're talking about as the signal crisis mm-hmm. for U.S. global hegemony. And he looked at, you know, all of the economic indicators and he looked at what had happened over the 450 years before that. And he said that the United States is seeing like the first kind of, you know, throws like like the before the death pangs, you know, this crisis beginning Mm -hmm. and there will be decline after that. And what's compelling about the argument is that what he sees over and over again, and I think what we see as historians is a movement from C to M. Mm. And that is, yes. over and over again, we see what we call neoliberalism, which is the United States and the British before and others, right? You build this industrial base, but what have we seen but a vulture capitalistic 
uh, cannibalization mm-hmm. can- cannibalization of the industrial capacity of this country. Yep. You know, in the '80s, with the hostile takeovers and the mergers and the consolidations and uh, leveraged bankruptcies. Um, you know, and of course the movement of uh, you know factories abroad. Yep. You've we seen, don't make. Yeah. We got. See, we got rid of the. We're not doing. We're not making anything anymore. We're financializing everything. We're, we're financial. GE, for example, Ge- uh, General Electric. Um, uh, I'm sorry, no, GM, General Motors, uh, makes more money off of its credit department than it does <laughs> off of making cars. I didn't you know can't that. make this shit. That's amazing. G-Man, Holy they, shit. They, they, there's like, I think it's two times as much money Jesus. made off of financializing uh, than actually building cars themselves. It's so like giving out the loans to buy the car yeah. to the people who. And, they, and wow. going out of even, like, because it started with cars, right? Yeah. Because they wanted, uh, when the 70s come and there's the, this austerity moment, but then. Of course, Reagan opens up these flood, this flood of uh, credit. Well, right, because you got to fill the gap somewhere right. of consumer demand, or else the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, that famous uh, graph that we've all seen of like productivity going up with wages, then it breaking in yep. the seventies. Yep. What, of course, fills that gap, credit. which is all profit, yep. is credit. Yep. Right. So, like GMAC, it starts off as a way to like, oh well. Uh, working class people in the United States aren't making as much as they used to. So, like, we'll set up a credit program so they could buy our f- cars like the Ford is compromised, but this time with interest. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, uh, Ford not paying the workers $5 a day, but, like, paying them $2 a day, but then, like, you know, letting them buy a car, but with, like, a user's rate yeah. of interest. So, like, that's a, a perfect example of that entire thing. So... It's arguable, then, that um, this U.S. hegemony that's been around for about 100 years now uh, went into that C to M stage of financialization uh, 45 years ago. And that was the signal crisis for U.S. uh, dominance in the globe of our capitalist and political system. And now I, I think it's fair to say Origi, he hedges on this because in the eight, in the late 80s and 90s, when he's writing this, the only real competitor to the United States was Japan. Yeah. And he's saying, like, Japan could never do it. And there's no other country. In and the like world. a year and, later, they just <laughs> ate shit. And they ate shit. And then and he didn't see, of course, China yet. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so one could argue from Origi's argument that like uh, President Xi will save us all, as your friend Felix says. Yes. Right. But then again, with this expansionary tendency of this, um, you know, it's already global, you know, like like capitalism is already global. How will you? Yeah, like, there's no way to pick it up because space, it's under the same. Know? It's in the same. It's the same. Uh, it's all financialized everywhere. Yeah. I mean, we're still making things, but but the but the but the real economy has been totally subsumed. Yeah. And, and like and, uh, you know, wage labor. I don't know, the enclosure or like the the end of like peasantry is almost completed. Like when China became marketized, you no longer had a reserve army of labor in like the countryside that you could bring in, you know, in order to, uh, you know, basically decrease wages. So like it's hard to even imagine now that China could do it on a larger scale unless they kidnap Elon Musk and uh, are able to make spaceships and we'll do like a, I don't know, like interstellar uh, capitalism. So I guess what that brings us to in conclusion is that um, if we are in now with the 2007-2008 terminal crisis of uh, U.S. global hegemony, um, it's bad, folks. Like that means that uh, the illusions that we've been living under and the reality for the last uh 100 150 years uh are are slipping away at this moment and uh it means that 
this turbulence that we see under Trump is a mirror of the turbulence you saw when the UK was falling and the US was rising. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that turbulence represented itself as a first and second world war in which, what, 100 million people died yeah. between them? So with that in mind, uh, I, I guess the question is, is if we are in decline, are we going to go gently into that good night as the northern Italian city-states and the uh, Dutch with their beautiful Amsterdam where you could smoke weed mm -hmm. and, you know, prostitutions, you know, legal and unionized and all that good stuff and things are beautiful. And the UK, which is totally not a basket case, it's which is just doing great. It's doing great. They're yeah. doing great. Their politics, their economy, totally awesome. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's Corbyn, so maybe there's a chance. But, like... There, what 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 does that mean for the future of the United States, or what what does it even mean for this particular political moment? What do you what do you take from that? Well, uh, Cory Robin has has advanced for a while, basically since Trump was elected. Uh, he's working on on the theory uh, of presidencies by a, another uh, political scientist that there's there are political co there are durable political coalitions and consensuses as we discussed that persist over a number of years and then certain presidencies they embody certain aspects of it like you have the guy who creates it like reagan and you have the person who solidifies it like clinton and then inevitably contradictions sharpen to the point of the thing collapsing right another uh, kind of cycle a, a systemic cycle. and then you're ending up with the guy at the end of the stick the last guy as the thing is falling apart and he like refers the carter he refers to that as disjunctive presidencies, oh, and he says that Clinton. You know, he says Carter is the is the disjunctive president at the end of the New Deal consensus, and, and right. that Trump is the disjunctive president at the end of the neoliberal consensus. Oh shit, that's fascinating because what Arigi calls these moments of chaos in between are uh, moments where you go from uh, continuous de development to uh, disjunctive uh, yeah. chaos. Yes, so. Maybe Corey Robbins read uh, Giovanni Arrighi. Probably. So, uh, so the obviously what's implied there is that uh, Trump is not quite a placeholder, but he's sort of maybe the last guy. He he, he is he, he 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 papered over the because it looked for a while like the Republicans were not a viable national party anymore. I mean, they could hold oh, on to the House yeah, through gerrymandering and stuff. Yeah, two thousand and eight, like people were saying the party was dead. But of course. Know, Obama was committed to reifying neoliberalism in the face of its greatest ever collapse, which turns out that's not really a viable long-term strategy. Thanks, Obama. Because, oh, what's this? It's not working. You're not. You're you're creating a paper recovery, and then you're you know exacerbating all of the crises created by this in the first place. Let you're me not be clear: uh, the financialization and the housing bubble did not work very well. So uh, Tim Geithner is going to come, and uh, he's going to double down. Yeah, we're going to make your face whole. It's going to be fine. Yep. And and so but the Republicans weren't really able to 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 oppose that like Romney, you know, obviously got owned. But Trump, by being a sui generis media freak and just totally exploiting the spectacleization of politics, the, yeah. the flattening of it into entertainment, right. is able to paper over the contradictions and the falling apart of this consensus. But. And now he's in power and he is, you know, bounded by the institutions and by the party that he represents and their yeah. uh, agenda. He's not able to break out of the mold. He won largely because he pitched himself as not a regular Republican. He tells the truth. But he can't govern that way. <laughs> right, he can only yeah. govern with spectacle and with sort of this Subtle. grotesque figure of himself yeah. 
but his actual policies are just bog standard neoliberalism, except for his uh, this uh, attempt to like do a trade war with China. That yeah. honestly, it's it's it it seems so ad hoc that it's very hard to see divine any kind of real uh, project there. Like he's not he's clearly not doing this out of any kind of uh, broader like Nixonian right. uh, task of like reordering the the global trade yeah situation because what that because what you were saying led me to the question is like um, just like Carter we saw in his presidency is like anticipating Reaganism and Clintonism I guess the question is like is there anything within like Trumpism yeah I think that I think shit? I think that's true is I think the trade element of it and uh, the thing trade, that he won yeah. the Midwest the, with the nationalism the, the national the, 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 the economic nationalism yeah uh, is the harbinger of the sort of fracturing of the the Republican base and of the neoliberal order uh, the problem is though what does it reconstitute around because yeah. if it's nationalism we, that's not good we know that for we know that We've like see reorder, where that goes. That's yeah. not great. Yeah. Uh, and I honestly think like we have coming up here the last sort of electoral off ramp to apocalypse coming up and that Bernie Sanders is like the Reagan figure, ideally, hopefully. Well, who see, kind of brings in a new paradigm that we can then do another wrenching hinge point reorganization around. so so we're we're at another pivotal decade mm-hmm. and we're at a wrenching hinge point indeed so i guess maybe as we sit here in um yeah memorial day weekend in uh 2019 we'll see how well this ages yeah we will uh with biden uh decisively leading in the polls we'll see if uh Bernie Sanders was a, uh, I don't know, a Goldwater in uh, 1964 who, like, seeded an entire political revolution through conservatism in the United States if he loses to Biden or whether he will be that Reaganite figure. And that will be the real question uh, politically, you Mm -hmm. know, this year, what what comes out of that. Yeah. And I I think that, like, more fundamentally, and uh, this is where um, our our knowledge of, uh, of electoral politics, uh, ultimately is betrayed by at least my, um, feeling that is ultimately insufficient as, as important as it is to understand it and what it reflects is that, um, we got at the central contradiction of the last great, uh, left movement in the United States that was actually global as well, right? Yeah. Which is the new left, as Mm -hmm. they called it, which becomes the new politics, which becomes what we know today. Um, You know, it was obviously not able to synthesize what had happened in the past. No. And of course, you have the 1930s, which was uh, workerist and uh, had a militant edge to it and was based on bread and butter and sometimes revolutionary demands, of course, that were blunted by mm-hmm. you know, the state and by capital. So I guess the question is, is um, you know, as, we, as we move forward, as we are in this terminal phase, as we are in this chaotic moment where there might not be another hegemon, China yeah. might not be able to pick it up for us. And even you can Bernie, see they don't really want to. That's for sure. Yeah, they don't seem like they want to. And more power to them. I mean, honestly, the rise of China is just the return to the historical norm. Yeah. You know, look at look where all the Roman specie was. You know, yeah, for yeah, two thousand years. It all yeah. went over there. And all that Spanish gold. Yeah, yeah right. It, it, it's all in fucking. It's all like buried in fucking uh, Guangzhou. But uh, the um, I guess the the question is like, are we at a point right now where, like in the nineteen seventies, I would argue that you could have created with those wildcat strikes and with that 
kind of inclusive working class militancy, a new, a real new left, an anti-capitalist left that wasn't like LARPing graduate students pretending to be uh, third world Maoists, like blowing up shit yeah. uh, and uh, going underground or, you know, militants uh, from like Dayton, Ohio, the sons and daughters of lawyers yeah. uh, entering factories in, uh, in Texas in order to like bring Leninism to the working class. Like, you know, the, it was it didn't it there was there was a missed opportunity to create a left that was both inclusive and also radical in its labor demands right. for overthrowing capitalism so i guess the question is is a lot of heavy lifting has been done for us in this era this bleak era that we're talking about since the 1970s because, because at least we've taken the kernel of anti-racism uh, and feminism, you know, uh, not anti-feminism, but feminism mm -hmm. from that moment. And of course, now LGBTQ rights moving forward, um, we that now is taken for granted on most of the left. Of right. course, there are. Yeah, uh, there's a loud minority out there that thinks if, uh, you know, socialists are allowed to use the N word that they'll immediately, you know, win over the working class and will win. And, uh, you know, I don't think they're right. But, you know, Lord knows, maybe uh, that sub on reddit is correct but uh you know i guess the question is like um since that heavy lifting has been done and because that fractured the the, the class movement in the last pivotal decade can we imagine that now with a rising tide of labor militancy in the united states and with what looks like a chaotic uh reconstitution of the global order that this question of socialism or barbarism is back on the table and that it might even be more possible now and more necessary to have socialism because we've, we can potentially synthesize that 1930s radicalism with that 1970s radicalism? Does that make sense? No, that, I think that's the way to look at it. And, yeah. and, and that's what's frustrating watching a lot of the arguments online is for a number of reasons, there's just these economies of you know takes and whatever where people are like... Uh, there have all these incentives to compete with each other internally as part of one movement, and and uh, you know, uh, and if you so you, there there's their polarization, and 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 it resists the sort of movement towards synthesis. It's the inevitable result of actually trying to do something. I mean, you if you do that long enough, you will reach a synthesis because that's how things go. That's how right. that's the engine. That's how that's the movement forward of history. Uh, but I feel like. As as hopeless as that looks, the reason reason it stays that way is because it is totally unmoored. Because it is literally just people posting. Right. Uh, but I feel like yes, we are in a moment where we have had the, a lot of the hard work of of integrating the working class as a concept has happened. Even though a lot of liberals are the ones who love to talk about the white working class because yeah, they, they want to reestablish. They want to act like this is like 1964. Because they again. came out. They they are those same fucking new Democrats. And let's be honest, folks. Their conception of politics that, that arose at this moment, the same conceptions they have today of like civility and like norms and like I'm a good person, that needs to be destroyed. Yes. That, not them personally, but that conception needs to be destroyed because Nixon understood that politics is the division of scarce resources and power. Absolutely. And it is cutthroat and it is ruthless. Yes. And the Bidens of the world and their fucking mouthpieces out there and the 
God, Lord knows the fucking Betos of the world who want to like bring like civility and tone back or whatever. They are they are the the near enemy right now. Yeah. They don't recognize that there is a real fucking struggle out there. And those libs are going to have to choose whether they want to be on the side of the class or they want to be on the side of, uh, I don't know, any up in a fucking ditch somewhere in 20 years stomped yeah. on by a bunch of guys in Pepe masks. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so we've there's been a lot of work done, as you said, to to integrate the concept of the working class, and the working class is also now beginning to organize again. Unprecedented strike movement after twenty f- years of absolutely fallow ground. Most uh, most number of strikers since nineteen eighty seven last year. Well so done, everybody, that is yeah. I mean, if it's going to happen, I feel like the good news is that we have a we have a situation where it is more likely to occur than it ever had before that that like the material conditions are such the degree of alienation from the economy is as it exists is such and the decreasing salience of uh of yeah those sort of racial resentments and and and, and gender anxieties that fractured the uh, the working class in the 60s and of course people say what are you talking about trump won but he fucking he lost and he he got by by the republican electorate it's the same electorate it's always been like a few thousand people switched in a few states and most of them were not doing it out of racial animosity it's because just one of them talked about jobs and the other one didn't and hillary clinton and she's a pure representation of this she was an avatar of nothing will ever change nothing can change and politics exists for you to feel better that you're a better person than the people who vote for the other party, and that's exactly what it is again going back to this, this same fucking conception and i would add too and like you know what, like one of the worst things that I think like leftists do and Marxists especially, but also anarchists, is that uh, there's always this sort of catastrophism, right? That like we need to do things now because if like we're not organized and if we don't hit the streets at this very moment, you know, the entire history of humanity is at stake. Like, yeah, that's like annoying and that's self-aggrandizing and that's putting a lot of like burden on individual yeah. people and groups to do. But, you know. The one difference between the 1970s and, and, and today is that in the 70s, they recognized this ecological crisis. They already knew about it. The solar panels were put up on the White House. First, one of the first things that Reagan did, of course, when take he gets off. in is take them right off because, uh, you know, none of that fucking hippie sun power on <laughs> our White House. I tell you, it's a Chad White House. But uh, <laughs> fucking you have on the one hand the ecological crisis, which makes our, um, you know, uh, the time frame of our actions, of course, are now shortened. Yes. Very much so, unless we're going to live in, like, Posadist, uh, <laughs> catastrophist uh, bunker communism yeah. at some point in time. And then again, like, with the Origi argument, it's like, if over the last, you know, four or five hundred years of capitalism, you've had this sort of greater and greater expansion, but now we've gotten to the point where this last crisis is confronting an entire global order of capital, um it seems to me that that there's no higher synthesis of that that could exist spatially or in terms of political power except maybe some like dystopian like one world rentist government uh like capitalist like state capitalist government run by elon musk and like palantin that uh just you know gives you a ubi so that they could suck the fucking adrenochrome out of your yeah. uh infant children every you know yeah no it would, I, it would like it, it, it the chinese are developing it like they're they're putting the technological uh uh investment in human management oh the surveillance shit yeah oh, yeah. God, yeah social credit all that oh, stuff like God, they're yeah. 
they are realizing that the challenge of the state will be like subordinating and managing a population that will become harder and harder to keep uh or keep docile with traditional political uh agendas due to the rapidly changing resource and and, uh, environmental environment or environmental context and so they recognizing that and saying so what are the technological uh solutions we can have to to maintain and that will cross that will be the global standard for the, like, so. this, the, the sort of lifeboat uh, like uh, privatized capital that will that will like rule over the wasteland. Yeah. And then of course, the other the flare that the United States is throwing up is uh, a giant border wall. You know, mm-hmm. like um, uh, of course, Trump can't get it built, but we see all these refugees coming just because of poverty, underdevelopment and of course, like U.S. fuckery in uh, Central America. Well, like just imagine when vast swaths of the world are uninhabited, mm-hmm. uh, worlds are gonna uh, walls are gonna go from a thing that like liberals are disgusted by to something that uh, oh hey actually you know we're not we're not all that against walls uh, <laughs> you know we're gonna have our uh, I don't know. Well, the Democrats are saying that they say we don't need a wall; we need a smart wall. A smart wall, yeah. And it's like as yeah. long as it's as long as it's invisible and it's just drones or yeah. something, then that's fine. Yeah. Even though it's doing the same thing, they just uh, they just better recognize that they're going to need like uh, I don't know thirty, thirty, forty thousand of those when like millions of uh, climate change migrants start like storming the uh, the southern border. Yeah. So I guess like uh, as historians, uh, especially as we look amateur, I should say. As we look across this, just like soldiers, um, when they've been through battle, you know, in a place like Vietnam, whatever side you were on, they say uh, at a certain point, you've seen all this death and destruction and, uh, you know, maybe a kind of grander scale and bigger vision, and you get that thousand-yard stare. Uh, We here at uh, History is a Weapon, uh, as people who look deep into the structures of history, we don't have a thousand yard stare. We have the thousand year stare. Mm-hmm. We are just uh, we're like Bran Stark from uh, <laughs> Game of Thrones, but not for the future, but for the past. Yeah. And that future is something that we all need to create together. And uh, I would say that we leave you with, uh, again, the um, the birth of the birth decade of what you live through and give you the. I don't know, not so happy, but maybe inspirational knowledge that you live in one of those moments in time where uh, everything is flux. And as Mao Zedong said, uh, uh, there is great chaos under heaven. Uh, The situation is uh, great. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think about the 90s, as I I like to call it, the last decade, like Uh, the last 10 year period that had its own sort of defined character. And that character was the sense of end of history, the sense of malaise, this... It's the sense that there is no alternative. And as scary as we are, as scary as this moment is, and it's terrifying, the one thing you can say is that that sense, that sense of closedness, that, oh. sense, of, that sense of lack of alternatives, the sense that this is a steady state, that's gone. That's gone. Everyone yeah. knows that something new is coming and yep. that we have the power to be in part of shaping it. Yeah. And, you know, as we close it out again, like worst case scenario, Maybe, you know, President G, you know, will bring the social credit system globally, will tame climate change. Maybe we'll all be vassals of China. This will probably be fine. You know, if, they, if, if they if they if they prevent like the, the, the cooking off of all the, the Siberian uh, 
carbon and yeah. turning the Earth into the Venus. Methane, yeah. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it, too. If you prevent Earth from becoming Venus, I'm fine. Do it for your great-grandchildren. Yeah. Just accept, uh, you know, accept uh, uh, President G thought. But, uh, you know, just maybe uh, let's all recognize out there that... Uh, I don't fucking know. Uh, you should just like do shit. Yeah, uh, do what you think is gonna work. Do what you think is gonna work. You can, we, you can only trust yourself. We got no answers for you guys. We're fucked up. That's the real <laughs> us. We're out. This is history as a weapon. Bye bye. Bye.